Hello there, Pulsing Black listeners. This is your girl, Christine, coming back at you with another awesome episode. And today I am so excited. We get to talk to Tiana and Gracie about adoption journeys. And while I know some of their adoption stories, I do want to give you all an opportunity to hear what they have been through, what they have overcome, what they have learned, and how their journeys have been an inspiration to many. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, Christine. Great to be here. Yeah, so we'll start with you, Tiana. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and when you realized you were adopted and how those initial experiences shaped your identity as a Black girl. So I was born in Detroit and was adopted when I was four months old. And the couple that adopted me their criteria at the time was just they wanted a child who was considered hard to place. So in 1971, that was a healthy, young, Black child. So I was considered hard to place. And so they adopted me. The first time they saw me was the day they came to pick me up. They had not seen me at a time. And my parents are white. So for me, in terms of the shaping part of my growing up experience, one of the things that my parents did is they moved from where they were the majority to a place where they were the minority. So we moved to a place called Remus, which is between Mount Pleasant and Big Rapids. So for people who are familiar with Michigan and some of those cities, so Big Rapids is where Fair State University is. Mount Pleasant is where Central Michigan University is located. So we were in a town in between those two. So we were able to see a lot of people that looked like us, learned about a lot of the, I, I would say kind of that country black experience. So Chitlins, Cracklin, Greens, which is a part of a lot of black experience in general for a lot of people, all of those types of things, what like was really good. Anytime the church had a potluck, the food was always amazing. <laughs> so that was a lot of it. I mean, my mom learned how to cornrow. She wow. dashikis because they adopted three kids. So I had two other siblings that were adopted as well from, so none of us are biologically related, but we are related in our adoptive family. So mm. I've always known I was adopted. You know, you can't escape that when your parents are white. It's great. Mm. There's no hiding that. <laughs> um, so that has really shaped uh, some of how I view myself. Mm. Well, as once I was outside of what I call the bubble of my parents. And their sphere of people that they know and who knew them. And so there were just things that I gained because of being related to them. Okay. Being white, that was, they were automatically given to me because they knew my mom and dad. Where once I was really out on my own, and I think a lot of that once I moved to West Michigan, where people didn't know me, they didn't know my mom and dad, then it was a whole different space because then it's just what did what's their experience with black people mm-hmm. women whatever that was then that was how I would was viewed was wow yeah so just that transition of being in their care in their presence and in a community where they were known in relation to you to then having to develop a sense of self independent of them wow yeah. that's amazing wow Gracie, how about you? What was your adoptive beginning? And at what point did you learn you were adopted? How did that shape your identity as a Black girl? Yeah, but before I can jump into that, I give credit to Tiana's parents. Like, I'm literally, like, blown away (laughs) and so amazed to hear about the intentionality that your parents had and how they immersed you in your culture instead of you know, taking you from your culture. Uh, I'm, I'm literally mind blown. I, I'm almost speechless about it. How amazing that that's yes. what I am thrilled and, and, and just so happy to hear that. My, my, my journey was much different, but I often <laughs> imagine what it would have been like had I had other black people in my life, which mm. I didn't have any. So my story 
I was born in the Congo, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, in Central Africa, near the border of Congo and Rwanda. And at the time of which I was born, there was a lot of civil unrest and riots and violence that was happening. Um, and, and part of that violence also was rape and, and crimes against women. Mm. And when uh, I was born out of some violence that happened, I was born in a mud hut in, in a very, very rural area where my biological mother conceived me. I'm imagining uh, that wasn't her plan whatsoever. She didn't know my biological father. She was young. She was between the ages of 14 and 16. Many of her family members had died from disease and malnutrition. And when I was born, she wanted me to have a chance at care and life, but knew that she wouldn't be able to take care of me because she was so sick and malnourished and poverty-struck as well. Mm. So at a week old, she brought me to a nearby orphanage. When I arrived to the orphanage, I was given 12 to 24 hours to live because I was really sick. I had four different diseases and only weighed three pounds at a week old. And so the orphanage workers placed me in a toy doll set uh, because they didn't want to take up a crib. And they thought they placed me in the toy doll set and placed me in the back of the orphanage away from everyone that would be a good place where I could go in peace. Well, coincidentally, two hours after I arrived to the orphanage, an American family from Grand Rapids, Michigan, happened to be visiting the orphanage. They were already living in the Congo at the time doing missionary work and had four kids who were grown, who were their biological children. And um, they <clears throat> spent the afternoon taking care of the, the healthy babies and, and being an extra set of hands at the orphanage. And the woman of the family, the mother, had to use the restroom. So she cut towards the back of the orphanage to use the restroom. She saw me there in the toy doll set and naturally thought that was a doll. And then when she came out of the bathroom, my head moved. She was very perplexed and touched my forehead. And in the moment that she touched my head, she heard a voice inside of her say, this is your daughter. And then she told her husband that God was calling them to adopt me. And amazingly, he had a piece about it. And that very same afternoon, they adopted me. My adoption was an official adoption at, in that place in the Congo during that time, especially interracial adoption as my parents are white, my family is white. It wasn't, re, adoption wasn't recognized as a cultural norm. So they were told that they could bring me home to, to care for me. So that's what they did. They were already living in the Congo. And, you know, I, over time, became stronger. I didn't have much medical care, but with the love and support, each day I was, I was stronger than the previous day. And so my parents didn't name me for quite a long time because they wanted to have an, a name with meaning and significance, as my biological mother had not previously named me. And after I was showing signs of not just surviving, but thriving, my parents named me Gracie after the grace of God that I survived. Wow. So when I was four, or almost four years old, my parents wanted me to have an American education and the opportunity of the American dream. So we moved back, or we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I grew up in a very homogenous area. Uh, my parents' number one focus, I think for me, was education. So we grew up in an area that had a top-rated school system, but zero ethnic or racial diversity whatsoever. I had a graduating class of 500. Of the 500 students, I was the only black female. And there were two, two black males, and that was it. And so it was really hard and challenging for me. You know, I'm still like reveling in Tiana's story about you know, how her parents intentionally moved to an area where they were the minority and where they could help support you. And so my parents supported me with their love and their care, but it was really hard for them to understand how it felt so different for me. And it was hard for me being so young and also having this attitude of gratitude. It was hard for me to convey the aspects of myself uh, or my life that made me feel miserable, feeling so isolated, feeling like I was the only one. Mm. Um, whereas essentially, you know, my parents, yes, they gave me they gave me the world and they gave me so much of, of what I needed and things that I wanted, but didn't understand that lack of belonging from that. Mm. It was really, really hard. And I kept it, I kept it quiet for a very, very, very long time. And it wasn't until 
I was in my my probably mid to late twenties that I started being more vocal about it. Mm-hmm. After graduating from high school, I went to Grand Valley State University, and it's so funny. Oftentimes, when people talk about Grand Valley now, they talk about it as not being a very diverse school. And for me, it was so diverse. <laughs> and I was so excited to actually know other Black people and brown people and international students. And, and even in a retrospect, there really weren't a ton, but to me, it seemed right. like a lot. So my, my first Black friends weren't until college. And even the first Black people that I really knew on a personal level wasn't until college. So wow. it, yeah, it was a challenge for sure, definitely. Wow, I'm so touched with how you had to live a life of balance between being grateful. You know, I can only imagine the gratitude you feel obligated to express as an adoptee, the constant, <laughs> maybe sometimes pressure, because truly you don't feel like it in the moment to be like, I am so blessed. Where would I be had it not been, you know, and living in that when really there are things truly that your spirit needs to be fueled with to feel that sense of belonging, Gracie, to feel like you're affirmed in, in your skin, especially, and to feel like, you know, you see representation. How do you express that and not come off ungrateful and and not come off as after all, I mean, I'm sorry, my reference, and I can own this, of adaptive stories is watching, you know, movies and, and stories. I really don't know somebody personally other than the two of you who was adopted. So I can only imagine the conversations or the feelings that are in those families of, you know, I feel so blessed because where would I be? And, you know, I've seen people who have even aged out of foster care who feel like nobody claimed them out of the system. Nobody came. And as Tiana was saying, they're considered hard to place. Imagine when that is the title that was assigned to you, that you are hard to place. And some people really truly age out of that system. And so going back to your stories, did you ever have feelings of, I wish I knew my birth family so that this part of me, my identity as it pertains to being Black, can be affirmed? Or how did you feel about your desire for reunification with your birth family as it pertains to your identity? Tiana? Um, for me, I, I know that there are a lot of adoptees that feel from a very young age they want that connection mm-hmm. because they feel like, I know this isn't really my place. Or I feel like there's something missing and I know that that comes from my, my birth family. And I was, I was on the other side where I never had that. So for me, I always felt growing up, like this is my mom and dad. Mm. These are the people that raised me and all of that. And I never had that desire to want to connect. But when the opportunity came and I set all of the fears, all the unknowns about what that was going to be like, aside and went for it there then opened up this space that I didn't even know existed that I realized was specifically for my biological family that about the parts of myself that I didn't really know the parts of myself that are where do certain things or likes come from or how I laugh or what I look like because of course I don't I, anything like you know I used to joke with my mom and dad well I just have the better tan you know <laughs> sort of thing with my parents but being able to look at my my birth mother and my birth father my siblings cousins and think these are all these are my people mm-hmm. this, where I come from to be in Birmingham, Alabama. No, this is where, this is where my, all of my mom's, my birth mother's side, all of her family is all from here. This is where they were, where they live, like to ride through the neighborhood of this is where my brother Jay, where he, you know, grew up and see all that and realize this is a part of my history. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know, just didn't know that yet. And that, that has added to that sense of my blackness by being reconnected back to my birth family. Yeah, so that just that real sense of, this is also a part of who you are. And I think for me as well, and I don't, Gracie, you might be able to speak to this as well. There are times when I catch myself in a certain thought pattern that I realize comes from how I was raised because my parents were white. 
Mm. The privilege and things that they just had, that white privilege that we often hear about these days. I think I grew up with a mindset that I had that. We didn't call it white privilege. It was just this, you know, everything is attainable. You have access to things and can do this. You just got to put your mind to it, work hard, et cetera, et cetera. And then realizing down the road that, okay, that doesn't really apply to everybody. Wow. That there are things that I, yes, I have had access to, but when I look at it, I'm thinking if I had been with my birth mother, this would have been a much harder road to get to mm-hmm. and how it happened with my adoptive family. Wow. Wow. That's incredible to go from a place of afforded privilege, extended privilege to know, fend for yourself now. This is different. And it's, it's very good you bring that up, Tiana, because even as an African immigrant myself, I never used to know what my place was in social justice. And some, there was one time it clicked for me where I realized back in Kenya, my tribe holds great privilege. And when we move to this country, it's almost like you leave it at the airport. You ain't got that no more. You got to like find out what this new identity is about and that you know, your, your race, or the, and again, race is like an assignment. It's like you land at the airport and they're handing out race cards. Like, okay, you are black, you're this. Because a lot of people where they come from, they don't identify by race. They identify by like tribes and they identify by other things. Nobody's calling each other black in Africa. <laughs> like why? But that idea of like certain people groups seeking power over others, that exists for sure. We have tribalism, right? But the, the race thing and, and what our race group represents in this country as far as resources and lack of privilege. And so, yeah, Gracie, how about you? How was your growing up? How, how did you feel that your birth family could contribute to affirming your racial identity? And what were those dreams or thoughts like for you growing up? Yeah, great, great question. So growing up, I thought that my biological mother was dead. Um, that's what I was told at a young age. We, when we were still in the Congo, when I was about six months old, we met with my biological mother. We went, we went back to the orphanage and she essentially gave the blessing to my parents to adopt me. Okay. And it seemed like it was a beautiful day. I have pictures from that day and then we never saw or heard from her ever again. And the area that I'm from is about a half a mile from Rwanda. And then the Rwandan genocide occurred shortly after we moved to the U.S. So Mm. after the genocide, then I thought, oh, for sure, she probably did live living in a mud hut. There were so many rebels and riots, you know, that were sweeping through that area. So when I was in college, you know, I was so excited to have Black friends, but the, the challenge was is I wasn't accepted by the Black community at Grand Valley, that I wasn't Black enough. And then I was really excited to meet international students, but because I grew up in, in Michigan at a young age, I wasn't cultured or well-traveled enough. And so it was this, this hard dichotomy for such a long time. And would think about my biological mother from time to time. I would think about mannerisms and where I got, you know, certain things, you know, similar to what Tiana was thinking. But for me, I would think about it heavily during certain times, but then it would make me feel uncomfortable, probably because it was too much to handle. And then I would discard it. And then something would happen and something would trigger and then I would think about it again. And then, you know, I might I might suppress those feelings for a couple of years and then they would come back again. Miraculously and ironically in 2015, I was doing a project on the Rwandan genocide for a local school and I was doing a presentation and in prepping for my presentation, I reached out to one of the orphanage workers' daughters who who was actually the child who had the toy doll set that I was in. She and I had been connected on Facebook. Yeah, which it wasn't super crazy because she ended up going to boarding school with my siblings in Kenya. So I always knew of who she was, even though I didn't have the recollection or the memory of her. But since she was older than me, she's about five years older, so she knew me. So Mm -hmm. five years ago, I reached out to her on Facebook and I was asking her questions about her childhood. And from that conversation, she mentioned my biological mother, whose name is Murray Johnny. And I asked her, you know, what was she like? I never knew anything about her. 
she told me, you know, she loved people and she liked to smile. And immediately, like, kind of like you. The tears were flowing down my, my oh. face. And, and I, like, even just those were the only two things I knew about her from, as a person. And I was so blown away. And so I asked Amy, I said, do you know when she died? Because I never had closure of knowing. And she said, you know, I think it was about 20 years ago, but I'll ask around to find out. And I said, Please ask anyone you can. And so a couple of days later, I got a text message from her. Amy now lives in Kenya. So she was messaging. She sent me a screenshot between her and her friend who lives in the Congo. And mm-hmm. the text read, do you know if Mariah Johnny is still alive? And her friend wrote back, yes, she is. She came after me two weeks ago in the village to ask about her daughter in America, but I didn't have a clue, which was me. (laughs) It was crazy. It was unbelievable. So again, I, you know, I cried every emotion. It was unreal to realize that we were both asking about one another at the same time. Same time. Yeah. So I told my parents and I said, we need to go to the Congo because I want to meet her. And she was still living in a mud hut. She She doesn't have a phone. She didn't have access to internet. So she didn't know that I knew she was alive. And so my parents and I planned the trip and about six months later, so it's almost a year, five years ago to this date, we flew to the Congo to meet her for the first time. And it was amazing. It was so powerful and so beautiful. And we, we have the same smile. And the first night, my dad was recording it and, and there were so many people from the village that heard about this happening and they remembered my parents, especially because they're white and it was a big deal. So I was born in 85. So it was a big deal in the mid eighties for this white American family to take in and adopt an African baby. Mm. So there's people from the village who came to watch it. Like it was a reality TV show. (laughs) Wow. My dad was recording the moment. And the first thing my biological mother said to me was my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. And and it, um, it was the happiest moment of my life. Like, I'm going to cry just thinking about it. And it's mm. funny because I tell this story what feels like every single day. And it still, <laughs> <laughs> still gets me together every time. But it wasn't until that moment when she said that, that I finally felt like I belonged. Wow. And I, I, didn't, I didn't understand. There were so many times, too, where I kept wondering, you know, what would my life be like? Mm if I was still in the Congo or, you know, or if I grew up in a more diverse area or, you know, all of these ors, ifs, anything. But I realized that, you know, through the the hardships and the adversity, it happened the way it was supposed to. And I also discovered I have two biological brothers who I also met. And it was interesting, you know, I didn't even know I had brothers, but the moment that we met, I felt like I had known them my whole life, which was was so crazy. What a gift. Yeah. And even with my biological mother, it was like, I saw her the the very first moment I saw her, I knew her. I I felt like I knew her so intimately well, as if I had been living alongside of her. And so it was amazing. And it really helped, I think, my parents to have that connection with my biological mother as well. And to, for them to realize and see what was missing because I, I think we couldn't address it and talk about it until they, they experienced it firsthand. Correct. So this, them being a part of it. I know I, I can't even imagine how emotional that experience was for them, but it gave, wow. I think it gave them a lot of empathy and love that they didn't know that they had or needed. Hmm. And it was powerful. It was so, so powerful where then we we, my parents and I and my siblings and I were then, my adoptive siblings and I were able to talk about my experiences growing up and why it was right. so hard. Not just growing up, but even still, um, Tiana's point, you know, there's that privilege that we have. And, you know, I grew up also with that mindset of, hey, you can do anything, you know, if you want to be, if you want to be a brain surgeon, you can be a brain surgeon. If you want to be... Yes. A rocket scientist, you can be a rocket scientist. You know, there weren't any, there weren't any limitations that my mm. parents put on me. And it wasn't until, you know, the, the pavement hit the, the pavement hit the tires and I realized from society that even, no matter how hard I worked or how talented I was towards something, that there were these barriers. Mm. That was a, a hard and rude awakening to 
overcome. Uh, you know, it's still, it's still a battle. I'm grateful now that my parents have more empathy towards it. And to the fact that a year after we met my biological mother and my biological brothers, my parents moved back to the Congo, where now they spend half the year there and they run a faith-based nonprofit where they help support women who've been victims of abuse and sex trafficking, including my biological mother. And so now they help take care of her. And wow. now my biological mother is a major part of my life. And I, I financially support her and my brothers. And we get to FaceTime when she goes to my parents' house in the Congo. Wow. It's, it's beautiful, but it, it, it was a really long road, you know, to Oof. get <laughs> Right, right. You were basically an adult by the time all this came together for you. Yeah, yeah, I was 30 when we met. Wow, wow. How about you, Tiana? What was your reunification moment? So it was so, part of it is just surreal. So I'm listening to Gracie as she's talking about (laughs) that moment. And it takes me back to that first time that I met my birth mother, Tiny. So I have to back up a little bit because once they knew that I had agreed to communication with them because mm-hmm. the closed adoption, so okay. where it was pretty open because of the way the culture worked, the culture here in Michigan was closed adoption, where now there's you know much more opportunity for a birth parent to have connection with their child with, and the adoptive family um, and keeping that connection open, where in 71, they that was not even a consideration they were so when I got the phone call from the confidential intermediary and I eventually agreed to yes I will connect with my birth mother she connected me with my brother Jay he's the only sibling I have on that side Hmm. and I have two siblings on my birth father's side I've met one of them So in meeting my brother, Jay, the first time he and I actually had a phone conversation, it was just like what she was saying with her siblings, that instant connection, like I've known you my entire life. We just haven't talked in a really long time. That's, it was crazy. I was like, how is this possible? (laughs) I've known you my entire life until (laughs) the last couple of months. Mm. It, there was just this instant, like, yeah, this is my person. And we, you know, know each other and all of that. And then with my birth mother, with Tiny, that has been a little bit longer of a, of a path. You know, mm. connect, but she's also somebody who, the way she's lived her life, she's very much, I will be blunt and say what I need to say. And I have a feeling is probably... A lot of how she grew up, I think a lot of the women in her family were very much like that. And so me, that wasn't how I grew up. And if I don't know somebody, there are just things I'm not going to necessarily say. And so for me, one of those things was her talking about my weight, like within the first 24 hours of her meeting me, she's mm. weight probably three times. And I had a meltdown. Wow. Not in front of her. But there was that moment where I thought, I want my mom. Mm. So my mom had texted me to say, so how's it going? And I'm like, well, you know, some rough spots, etc. But I didn't really go into detail. Well, in my makeup group, I had done an, a video telling them how it was going, catching them up. Well, when you're doing a live and you start having a meltdown, and then you're trying to figure out, how am I getting out of this? <laughs> Well, tough to like, you know, I could just end the video and then everybody's wondering, is she okay? What's happening? Right. Stopped. So then trying to back myself out of, out of that and think, okay, I've got to be brave, even though this is not fun, this sucks. And I wish this was not happening in this manner. This is who she is. Mm. This is where she's at. Mm. But whatever expectations she had about me, because I think we both probably went into it with some, I don't know what to expect, but then at the same time, having some unspoken expectations that we maybe couldn't put our finger on. Mm. And when they don't meet that, so then it just, how you are processing in the moment. Right. You choose to say. And so I had to just recognize she is dealing with things that I don't even know. I'm not a parent. I don't know what it's like to place a child for adoption 
because you feel like I don't have another choice because mm -hmm. of how some things were for her that she decided, I don't want that for my daughter. So this is what I feel like is my only other option if I can't take care of her. Mm. So that was a pretty big thing that I can't understand. Right. I can't understand the emotions that seeing me brings up. Because when we met in the airport, we probably held each other and cried for like, I don't know, it seemed like an eternity. But there was just something about that meeting her and seeing her and touching her and like this mm. is that I'm connected to. Wow. As though, you know, she may not have raised me, but I'm connected to her. Yes. And that's always going to be the case. And to have that moment was just, it was surreal. Like what Gracie was saying when meeting her mom, you know, just one, not being open to it, like not thinking I was going to do it. And then for the opportunity to come, I think for her, it was, I don't know if the opportunity will happen. Mm. And so then for it to actually take place. Wow. You see, I wonder for your, and when you got to meet your birth mom, do you feel like maybe that was part of it for her? That thinking, I probably will never get to see her again. Like um, it could never be. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that definitely was it. And that was, I still haven't seen her since. So we, we FaceTime, oh, okay. see her in video, but just with travel and, you know, financially, that was the only time we've been able to, to be with each other. I'm mm. so grateful to have, you know, videos and photos and yes. FaceTime and be able to be connected with her. But yes. even still, you know, I can't wait to be able to see her again one day. I don't know when that will be. But when we were there meeting, you know, every second of that time, I kept holding on to it as if it was the only time I was going to have. Yeah. And then I think that in and of itself is so overwhelming, beautifully so, but intensely so also. Wow. And hearing that both of you have siblings, did it, after you reunited with your birth families and met your siblings, was there any time that you felt guilty? Like why, especially because you all were raised in white households with some privilege. Did you ever feel like, why me? Why was I the child that got adopted? Do you have any of your other siblings that were adopted? And what was that like? Did you have those moments at all, Tiana? I did have it with my brother, Jay. Mm because he talked a little bit about what his growing up experience was like. Mm. And I was like, whoa. And I think, okay, would it have been different had I been there? Would it have been the same? What, I mean, there were some things that I'm sure were trauma for him. So then I'm thinking, knowing my personality, what additional trauma would have been added to me watching what he was explaining was happening to him as a kid because it's a single parent household. She's in the military. She's trying to, you know, build a career that hopefully is going to put her in a good financial situation, raising mm. a child. I'm sure in the back of her head, she's also thinking what's happening with the daughter that I gave for adoption. Is she okay? Is she somewhere where she's being taken care of? Is, you know, what is her life like? Is it, is it good or is it bad? Like, did I make a mistake? And so I think some of his experience was her trying to also process her emotions about all of that. Sure. The only kid. There's not, there's always this thing when you have siblings that you kind of share with one another when you have those experiences, but mm. then you have that. So there, it was a part of me that just was like, wow, I really had it way better than he did on a lot of fronts. And then on my birth father's side, there are two siblings there and I've only met one of them. And I don't know, I think the dynamics there were also very different um, for that family because, you know, he, my brother Duche, he has had a, another sister, Ursula. And so, you know, they at least, they had each other. So in sure. terms of how they were, you know, living life after their parents split up, you know, they still at least knew we have each other. You know, Jay did not have that experience of, you know, whatever we're going through, I know I'm rolling with my sister with it, whatever happens, you know, right. not that. So there were some spots. I didn't feel it so much on uh, the siblings on my birth father's side, but definitely with Jay. Oh, wow. Thank you for sharing that. How about you, Gracie? 
So my adoptive siblings are much older than me. And I'm okay. the youngest. The age difference between my oldest adoptive sibling and I is 16 years. So growing up, my siblings, I didn't really feel like they were my siblings. I felt like they were aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. And two of them were already out of the house by the time we moved to the U.S. And yeah, it didn't feel like a sibling relationship. It just felt like, yeah, just aunts and uncles, really. So when meeting my biological brothers, they're younger than me and I'm the Mm -hmm. oldest. So it's an interesting dichotomy where I was so used to being the youngest and almost felt oftentimes undervalued from my siblings. Nothing against my siblings if they hear this, but I think they were just so consumed in their own life that things that I was doing seemed insignificant to them. And so when we, when I met my biological brothers, they, they admired me and looked up to me so much. Like every move they were watching, you know, and they were so intrigued that I, that I work, you know, even just that I have a job and, Mm -hmm. you know, that I own things, you know, like they, they couldn't believe it. They treated me almost like I was a celebrity, but, but then it made me feel like I had survivor's guilt. And then, mm-hmm. and then after we met and when we, we after the trip, I felt very depressed wow. and I didn't know how to process that guilt of understanding, you know, wow, I've had all of this opportunity when they literally were grateful just to be breathing and, mm-hmm. and grateful that they didn't die. And so it was hard for me. And sometimes it is still hard. And I, I would wonder, you know, why was I adopted, especially to learn that my biological mother had more children that she raised. Why was I adopted and they weren't? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if I'll ever get those answers or have that resolve. But I guess the way that I take action for that guilt is, is mm-hmm. being able to help when I can. And um, instead of, you know, feeling bad that I have, have opportunities, being able to share those opportunities in ways that will benefit them. Wow. That is so admirable. And I can only imagine because you were a child and you didn't choose the life that, that was given to you. But now that you are a product of your environment and of the resources that were bestowed upon you, just using that for good and compassionately trying to empathize with your siblings, I think that's, that's beautiful. And that's really all that can be expected of you, really, because a lot of the decisions that have shaped your life were made in your infancy, like you were a baby. And so... To end our time together, I just want to know if somebody who is listening is either an adoptee or is a parent that is adopted a Black child, especially if they don't share their racial identity, they're not Black themselves, what advice do you have for them? So number one, the advice for the child who is adopted may be listening and for those parents as well. Tiana? My advice for the adopted child would be that if the opportunity to connect with biological family happens, whether it's because they find you or you get to a spot where you can go on the search and get the opportunity that they are saying, hey, yeah, I want to connect, I would take it. Because as much as your adoptive family loves and cares for you, there's still a part of yourself that you will only find from your biological family, that you'll only find from where you come from. And there's just such a peace for me that I have found with that. Now, I do have a caveat in that there may be opportunities where it starts good and then there's a rejection that happens. Hmm. As you're on the journey, that the birth parents are not interested in that or siblings are not interested in that and that is heard that's hurtful and can feel like okay this is a second abandonment and so having that support system of your adoptive family is so critical and so then this is what i have to say to the adoptive parents if your child wants to connect with their birth family please understand that it does not damage your relationship with them that it's already set, it's already solid. And that by fighting that, when they're interested in that and you maybe have 50 million reasons why, and I get that if they're a really young child and there maybe are some, maybe some drug use or other situations that 
timing is everything. So, you know, sure. I'm saying, hey, when they're five and they want to do it, like, you know, mm-hmm. I'm saying that. But especially when they're getting into their upper teens, they're getting into college and they really are wanting to connect, that support from your adoptive family is so, so critical. Because if for some reason they do have rejection that comes from birth family, they need you to be that soft place to land when, if that rejection should happen. Or Mm. it's not going as well as they had hoped because they kind of had built up in their head how they thought, oh, it's going to be this and this is going to happen and it's going to be fun and da 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 da. And then it's not quite that. Mm. Need to be able to have that spot, that support system that they know no matter what happens we're here for you. We support you on this whole journey of you finding your full self. And so those are my, those are my pieces of advice for the adoptee and the adoptive parents. Thank you, Tiana. Wow. I never even thought of the second abandonment possibility. And wow. Gracie? Yeah. Excellent advice, Tiana. (laughs) I love it. For me, I'll start with advice for the adoptive parents. I am so moved and touched by the intentionality of Tiana's parents. I'm probably so moved and touched by it because it's so rare. Of, I, I, whenever I have opportunities to meet people who are adopted, especially interracially adopted, I quite honestly have never heard of any parent doing that. And so my advice for the parent would be to be intentional and in creating safe community spaces that are in alignment to your child's background. Yes. Uh, and have that be a regular space, not just, oh, once a year we do, we go to this camp or, you know, every so often we we're involved with this event. No, have it be a regular part of their life so that as the child is continuing to evolve and grow, that is also a safe space for them and that they're not trying to just figure out all of this stuff on their own. Like when I was in college, I was trying to figure out you know, soul food and Motown all on my own. Like I didn't have that support of anyone to teach me the things that I should know, but I wish that I did. Wow. And then Tiana, I really appreciate too what you said about, you know, to the parents of not being worried about, you know, that connection that the adoptive child could form with their with their birth family. The the morning or sorry, the day that I met my biological mother my mom said to me, this is, this is the morning we were going to meet her. My mom mm-hmm. said, to me, will I still be your mom? Mm. And it broke my heart. And I could tell that when she asked me that question, her heart was breaking of fear of not knowing mm. if, I, if she was still going to be seen and regarded as my mom or not. Right. And my response to her was that my need to meet, meet my biological mother did not take away from my mom from being my mom. Mm. And there, there is a connection that my biological mother and my mom and I will never have, but nothing was taken away. That was, right. was always going to be the case. Just how mm. my, my adoptive siblings and my parents are always going to have those connections in terms of mannerisms and traits. Even when you go to the doctor, the first thing they say to you is, What's your, you know, do you have a history with this? What's your genetic or biological history? Yes. And I, every single time I say, I don't know, I'm adopted, you know, even things as mm. that, or, you know, like my, my sister, my adoptive sister complains oftentimes about her knees and she says, oh, well, I got that from dad, you know, like those are deep mm. conditions that they're always going to have in a biological family, but being connected to your, your biological family, if you're an adoptee, doesn't take away from the existing connections. Um, between your family. So keep that in mind too. And my advice for someone, for the one who is adopted, there were so many times in my life where I kept trying to find belonging in somebody else Mm. or a group of people. I sought to find belonging in queer communities. I identify in the queer community. And so I thought, okay, if I'm connected with LGBTQ people, then I will feel like I belong. And I felt more comfortable but it wasn't still a, a complete sense of belonging. And then, you know, in college where I felt, okay, I need to be connected and find belonging with the black community. And then I wanted to find connection and belonging with the international community. And it was 
it never fully developed. It was never mm -hmm. something that was there because I didn't have belonging in myself. Wow. I didn't accept myself for my own identities and realize that the identities that I have and what the perspectives that I'm able to bring into this world really are superpowers. You know, mm -hmm. we, we kind of joke about, you know, we love the movies, what women want, because we think, <laughs> oh, it'd be great to be a woman, but be able to think what men think. Mm. And, and this is my reality is yes, I'm black, but I also am able to understand how white people think. And I'm also able to understand perspectives that both communities um, oftentimes don't understand or don't get to see the full picture. And I'm able to bring that together, which helps me in my career as a diversity and inclusion consultant. Yeah. Um, my own company called Gracie LLC. And I'm able to make these connections because of my life experiences. But it wasn't until I got, I came to accept myself. And so to, to wrap this part up of the question, I'm going to read to you a quote from Brene Brown because I love her. Yes. And this is from Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness. And so it says, fitting in is the opposite of belonging. Belonging is belonging to yourself first, speaking your truth, telling your story, and never betraying yourself for other people. True, belong true belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. It requires you to be who you are. Wow. Wow. That is so powerful. Belonging to yourself. Ooh. Can you teach that, Gracie? Like, can that be... <laughs> I think I will develop a training around that, you know, because, you know, it was something that it, it took a journey for me to be able to get to that. But when I realized, instead of trying to minimize so many of my identities and tried to hide them and try mm. to other people's spaces and other people's expectations, I was slowly dying inside. And it wasn't until wow. I knew who I was that I was fully able to start truly living. Wow. That is beautiful because we have so many identities. You can't even isolate one or play one up because you're in this crowd and minimize one. And then, you know how, like, I think of a DJ's um, board where they are equalizing different stuff. Like, imagine those are your identities. And depending <laughs> on where you are, you're like maximizing on one, you're minimizing another, and then you go in another space and you have to shift again. And, you know, I'm going to be less of a woman, but more of an African. I'm going to be less of this, but more of this. I'm going to be more of a Christian, but less of this. And how exhausting, how exhausting. Because at the end of the day, the only constant is you. And so if you are the person coming in and out of these spaces, and you're even there perhaps to fulfill your purpose, like Gracie, your job is your purpose. Tiana, you love what you do. So imagine how can you live up to the fullest potential of your purpose when you're doing that whole equalizing thing with your identity and all parts of you, you get exhausted. And so learning to belong to yourself means you can show up as you, no matter the space and let those people adjust if they're not comfortable. Let them have to shift and equalize and, and do all of that because you're there the same way on a Monday as you would be on a Sunday. I tell people, this is me, whether you come to my house on a Sunday or you see me in the workplace or you see me in the grocery store, you're gonna get this. And I think one, one thing that is constant that people always say is, I heard your laugh before I heard you, like, and I knew it was you. So my laugh, y'all, man, that laugh just gives me up. I couldn't, don't ever call me to go rob a bank because the moment I laugh, they will know it was me. They will be like, yeah, she had a mask on, but I know that laugh. I know that laugh. <laughs> And so that has been one thing that even though I've not always been comfortable myself in my true identity, because we all go through struggles of wanting to assimilate, to be accepted, to be comfortable, to survive and all of that. But my laugh has always been constant. And so I think that is the best advice you all could have given. And I'm so grateful. In fact, I am honored because your stories, I'm probably gonna sign off from this episode and go cry for a minute because I, I'm so touched as your resilience, your stories of just being where you are, knowing where you've come from and still standing and inspiring others. I am humbly, humbly blessed by you both. And so where can we reach out to you? What are some social media handles? What are some projects you're working on that we can support you either through this platform for the podcast or with those who may be listening? Um, where can we tune in, Tiana? What do you got going? 
So you can find me on Facebook. Um, it's Tiana Haber. That's where you can find me. I'm also on Instagram. So vitamin T 71 on Instagram. And then I also have a website, reconnectingthedots.net. I'm getting ready to um, launch my documentary premiere where I talk about my journey of connecting with um, my biological family and just kind of some of that process that um, I am going through. So I'm excited about that and what opportunities are going to come from that because I think that there are quite a few areas where I can share my story and it connect with people in the adoptive profession as well as adoptive parents, ad adoptees, and the birth families. I think mm -hmm. all of those can, will be impacted by my, my sharing my story and how everybody can learn from what I have to just my own experience. So I'm excited about where that's going to go. Awesome. Thank you. Gracie, where can we reach you? What can yeah. we support that you got going on? Thank you. Well, Tiana, thanks for sharing. I can't wait to stay tuned and follow your journey and watch your documentary. Folks can follow me on uh, Facebook. My business page is Gracie LLC and Gracie is spelled G-R-A-C-I. There's no E. So it's Gracie LLC. Also, you can follow me on Instagram at the Gracie Harkama, which is the Gracie, G-R-A-C-I, Harkema, H-A-R-K-E-M-A. -E Feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm also in the process of writing a book. I just submitted, I recently submitted my book proposals being reviewed by agents in New York City as we speak. So I'm hoping to get a publishing deal soon. And it's a memoir about uh, my entire life, but heavily focusing on uh, my adoption journey, rediscovering uh, and meeting my biological mother and my brothers and also you know my journey to finding authenticity and belonging for work uh, i'm a diversity and inclusion consultant so if you're interested in doing trainings on diversity and inclusion identity belonging unconscious bias or lgbtq inclusivity in the workplace please feel free to contact me for that also so again it's facebook gracie llc or on instagram at the gracie harkama Thank you so much. I can't wait for that book and I will be following and supporting any and everything. I'm always on go. Anybody that knows me, I tag like three, four people a day on stuff on social media. If I even get an inclination that you could be plugged into something, I'm adding you. <laughs> so thank you ladies for being here. And as always, thank you so much to my listeners. This has been another installment of the Pulsing Black Podcast. I am your host, Christine, and I look forward to seeing you next time.